Hey, it's Last Coffee House. We just talked about communists killing people, so now let's talk about some Nazis. Ordinary Men, Reserve, Police, Battalion 101, and The Final Solution in Poland by Christopher R. Browning was published in 1998. It chronicles the experiences of Battalion 101 during World War II. As always, we will go through the contents first, do some analysis, and then talk about some big picture stuff. So, mass shootings. Lots of mass shootings. Stadiums full of victims. This had a particularly different character from what happened in concentration camps. Battalion 101 in Poland really hunted Jews. They'd gather hundreds or thousands over the course of a, a period of time, and they'd have them lay on the ground and shoot them in the back of the head. The book is really about the functional details of how all this worked. So there are a lot of numbers, a lot of how people got transferred here and how the escalation of the process happened and who was involved. For instance, one of the major innovations early on was the use of a bayonet at the end of a rifle because they kept having issues where they'd miss or they wouldn't hit them right and it would splatter all over the place, like all over the soldiers. So this was a concern. But early on, a lot of soldiers were allowed to opt out of the killings. And there was, uh, amongst a lot of the commanders, there, there was a lot of concern about the psychological toll that it would take on the soldiers. Some of the soldiers would not shoot children. There's this one story about this guy who recounted how he would wait until his friend shot the mother and then rationalize to, him sh to himself that he could shoot the child now because the child couldn't be alone in the world. There was actually a lot of variety in the way that the prisoners were treated and the way that the soldiers behaved. One commander, actually, he spent a lot of time negotiating the salvage of the Jewish craftsmen in the area. He said it would be a huge blow to the economy if you just uh, allowed the mass murder of so many of the craftsmen. And his superior agreed, but then behind his back just had them shift off, shipped off and killed. And then it was a huge blow to the economy. And then later we've got just these mass escalations of the shootings and the manner in which they they went through this execution. They'd even they even tried to use music to cover up the shootings at one point. And then there were a lot of and most of these were reported by the soldiers themselves, so you have to take that in a certain way, but there are also independent reports of this is that there were many Poles who engaged in a tremendous amount of anti Semitism at the time and helped German soldiers find Jews and and all that. And this actually is reminiscent of that book that we read, Jerzy Kaczynski, The Painted Bird, where he talked about that was one of the biggest, well, <laughs> so it was fictional, but there was a whole bunch of stuff around that, how, how fictional it was. But anyway, so he talked about the, the involvement of the local Poles, you know, all of his countrymen, that being the greatest concern about the whole thing, the Polish complicity of what went on. The author speculated that some of it might be uh, German projection of anti-Semitism onto the Poles. A lot of the portrayals of the Germans of how it all went down was that the Poles were already really anti-Semitic and they engaged in all this stuff. And the Germans were more passive. You know, they were doing their job, but they were more passive and the Poles were more active. Whereas there's evidence that Germans were actually really involved in incitement against the Jews, incitement of the Poles against the Jews. So then the big question and what the, the title of the book is alluding to is how can these men do this? How, how do we get your average German to go from just living in a society, getting a job, having a family, to the mass murder of people for no reason? And specifically, the soldiers in Battalion 101 did not have a history of wartime brutalization. It wasn't like they were coming off of a front and they suffered all these things and so they were deranged by this or had PTSD. And as a result, they engaged in these kinds of brutal acts. 
there were a lot of theories that came out about why they did this. So some theories are about how evil people were drawn to the Nazis. You know, they saw what the Nazis did and decided that, that it was appealing. And so you had a disproportionate amount of evil people who ended up with the Nazis and got into this stuff. But the author is specific in saying that ordinary people could be and did engage in this kind of evil. And then there's a theory of strong socialization rather than individual psychology being the cause. And of course, uh, you know, we're ending up in the nature-nurture <laughs> question here. But that's such a, I don't know, mundane way to frame it. But so this is strong so socialization versus individual psychology. And then there are ideas of careerism and how much Nazis just wanted to advance their careers. So they were willing to do whatever they had to do for that. Uh, a lot of the people, a lot of the commanders actually had good jobs, you know, back home and their careers were doing great before all this stuff happened. So it's less likely. Plain old obedience to authority, you know, a la the Milgram experiment, that's one that comes up. Of course, I don't know, everybody talks about the Milgram experiment. It seems so trite at this point. But the weird thing, obviously, about this frame is that the in the Milgram experiment, it was just students engaged in an educational vocation trying to figure this stuff out. Whereas the Nazis in this situation would have been under actual threat if they didn't comply. But one of the things that the author likes that comes out of the Milgram experiments was about how if someone accepts an ideology, then actions follow. So there's something, you know, really important concept for what's going on in contemporary America. But if there's an ideology that's accepted, then it just it makes sense for people to follow those. And most of the rhetoric around what the Nazis were doing, like Battalion 101 in Poland, what they were doing, most of the rhetoric around this was not necessarily about the imminent threat or anything like that. It was it was about that they were an enemy and this is what we need to do to enemies, period. You know, it was really a straightforward kind of thing. There weren't particulars about why this was necessary. There was obviously a lot of propaganda, and there's the question of whether the propaganda got to a point of brainwashing as opposed to just being, you know, nudged in one direction or another. But there are pamphlets that went around that would, and it's so funny how often propaganda can be just completely inconsistent with itself. But there were pamphlets that went around that talked about how the Jews were trying to keep their bloodlines pure. That was a big thing that they were doing is keeping their bloodlines pure. But also they were trying to pollute German bloodlines and Polish bloodlines. So they were doing both of the things somehow at the same time. And then this big, huge, monstrous question about how central anti-Semitism in German society, in German culture, was. And the author talks about it. a number of scholars indicated that it was just a minority of activists who were anti-Semitic in German culture. It wasn't the broad German population. And the onlookers, so there were the activists and there were the onlookers. And the onlookers were you just average German citizen. And they just accepted legal measures of the regime, you know, for the immediate expediency of it, as opposed to having anything necessarily against the Jews. But there were all these escalating efforts, legal efforts being made against them. And they just kind of accepted them as they came along. Then this guy, uh, Goldhagen, he had this theory about German anti-Semitism and talked about how it was specifically German, that it was German anti-Semitism and that was the cause of what happened here. And the author resists this, you know, there's this whole back and forth and this attack on this theory and there's like this epilogue going on how their, their argument went and all this. But the author thinks it was more about socialization from the Nazi directives that pushed people into the anti-Semitism as opposed to just be this teeming anti-Semitism. Now, we're also reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which talked about kind of a widespread anti-Semitism within German culture. And, of course, you can always go back to Matthew and in the New Testament and the anti-Semitism in there and how that was a big part of Christianity historically and how much that affected it. But all that's really, really complicated.
And uh, some evidence that is brought to bear is that at one point, the Nazis in this area, they stopped leaving Soviet soldiers out to die, you know, just starve or freeze to death out in the cold. They started bringing them in and using them for labor. So this was a kind of kindness uh, to the extent that can be that was done toward those people. So it suggests that it wasn't just the Nazis being pure monsters. You know, there was something there. And of course, the whole book talks about how there were a lot of commanders that did different things, a lot of soldiers who opted out of doing these horrible things. But of course, there's kind of a scale here. <laughs> you know, I would be squeamish at just doing something minorly inconvenient to somebody for an irrational reason. So to step out of line when you're supposed to shoot somebody in the back of the head, I, I don't know. And, you know, the author talks about how a lot of it was just the physical distaste of it as opposed to anything ideological, you know, or any moral standard that you're following. Following. So this author was not a fan of Goldhagen and his theories about Germans being especially anti-Semitic. And the author talks about how these kinds of genocides have happened in many cultures that are just not as publicized. So to call it particularly German is kind of weird. And ultimately uh, falls on this idea that it's obviously multi-causal. And of course that's correct. There's got to be a tremendous number of inputs that go into this kind of a thing happening. And there's a false dichotomy of nature versus situational persons, dispositions, and situations. And this one particular theorist talked about how people affect situations as well. It's a feedback loop. So uh, this is an important idea, is that it's not just people being acted upon, but they act in these places and on these situations and affect how it goes from there on. So it's, it's really complicated, <laughs> really complicated back and forth. Then there's this lengthy exploration of these photographs from the era. So anyway, that's that's mostly the book. Now, this author in particular was very concerned with the validity of theories and determining what was true. So that's obviously, you know, that I love that. It's very refreshing. Used mostly firsthand accounts, but also questioned the motives of the source that was being used. So huge plus there on that one. Very concerned with objectivity and also found this particular niche to look into, you know, one battalion in Poland that was still emblematic of a bunch of the ideas that were being explored here. So lots of good stuff there. He kind of went off at the end. There's this very long section about, multiple sections, about this feud with this other theorist regarding German anti-Semitism. You know, it was like this Twitter beef. And I'm not sure how necessary it was to really go back and forth and bicker about these theories like that. But it was, it was somewhat informative, you know. It just might have fit better in a different kind of a book or a different kind of correspondence. But still, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in here. So big picture-wise, uh, the Nazi machinery was a special kind of monstrosity. But the comparison between the Soviets and the Nazis really is about kind of the cold rationality versus the emotional response. Obviously, what the Nazis did in things like this, like the Battalion 101, literally hunting Jews and thousands of bodies being strewn about, they just thrown on the ground and shot in the back of the head, it elicits a, an extreme emotional response. That was something, as I was going through this, I was like, this stuff really happened. It would hit me occasionally. I'm not just reading hypotheticals here. This stuff really happened. Whereas the Soviets killed way more people, but it was in a different kind of a context. And you question which one has a greater cost, you know? Definitely the emotional, generally the emotional response is not the one with the most rational salience. But it definitely is, when it comes to the Soviets, it's one thing to work people to death in service of some grandiose project, you know, like Stalin did for decades. It's another to actively hunt men, women, and children for extermination based on just completely irrational reasons. 
I mean, but the Nazis don't have a monopoly on this kind of a, an emotionally inflaming atrocity. Obviously, people have done that for centuries, and they just had the best PR. Anyway, that's ordinary men. Jeez, we are. I mean, we're learning a lot of a lot of stuff here. I, I'm gonna try to get away from <laughs> World War II villains and Cold War villains. I'm gonna try to get away from those from uh, for a little while. But uh, I think this is actually a really good book. I didn't know what it was about. You know, I didn't read the subtitle at all. I just saw the title and, and grabbed it and shot through it. And it wasn't. It was kind of, it wasn't that long, was it? I don't think it was that long. And there are a lot of uh, good ideas that offer a new perspective on this whole thing. I think illuminate a lot of questions that people would have about this, about what happened during this era. So anyway, that's Ordinary Men. This is the Jordan Peterson reading list. This is The Last Coffee House. And I'm going to try, you know, I usually do two books a week. It's been very difficult recently, but uh, I'm going to try to get back to that. At least get something out. I really appreciate everybody who listens. I really think that we're uh, learning so much about so much. <laughs> And it's it's really amazing. And whether we realize it or not, when we create a substrate, you know, in the back of our heads with so much information, it makes us better at everything. When it comes to trying to understand something quickly or understand something complex, then we have so much to pull from. So uh, again, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you on the next one. Bye. (laughs) 